We are going to get started here. Good morning, everybody. We're live. Welcome. If you're joining us now on YouTube, we are going to be returning to the book of Ezra today, uh, where we left off a couple weeks ago, uh, a few more than a couple weeks ago. Is quite a few weeks ago, actually. Um, was before we went through the book of Esther, we went we started the book of Ezra. Uh, I don't know about you guys, but for me, it feels like ages ago that we started the book of Ezra. Um, does Does anyone else you know, even remember the beginning of Ezra? <laughs> right? Yeah, it, it's been an interesting few weeks, to say to say the least. Um, besides us kind of taking a break from it to go through some other studies, uh, you know, I've been on paternity leave with. Eden, and then Mike and Laura uh, getting COVID and, and being out for a while. Mike, good morning. Good to see you here. Uh, so I'm, you know, very, very happy to say that Mike is recovering well, and he's, you know, happy to be here with us quietly in the corner today. Um, so the, the last few weeks, it's felt kind of like a trapeze act with me being out and then Mike being out. It's like, you know, swinging through the air and like switching places and just kind of praying for the best. Um, so again, you know, happy to say Mike and Laura are recovering well, but it's a slow recovery process. It's, I know, very frustrating at times um, because you still just get tired and winded easily. And uh, So definitely still keep praying for Mike uh, and Laura. Uh, and I also wanted to just personally say thank you to everyone for all of the, the prayers and, and the support uh, as Ellie and I have, have welcomed Eden into the world over the past few weeks, and especially to those of you who um, signed up to bring us meals over, uh, you know, during those first few weeks, we were just getting adjusted to having our home. Uh, it was a huge blessing, uh, and I meant to mention it last week as well, but it, we just feel so loved and so spoiled by our church family, um, so I just wanted to say thank you to all of you who, who helped with that. All right, let's, let's pray together, and then we'll dive into, dive back into the book of Ezra. Father, I just thank you again for this beautiful morning that we can uh, be here together to uh, study your word and to fellowship. I just pray for your blessing over this time as we uh, just spend time in scripture, that you would speak to our hearts through your word, and that we would be receptive to the truth that you have for us this morning. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. All right, now since it has been quite a while since we did the first half of Ezra, I think just a quick little recap is going to be a good idea before we go into the second half. So we, we covered previously the first six chapters in Ezra over two weeks. So we only spent two weeks in Ezra, but we covered six chapters. And those first six chapters tell the story of the first big migration of the Jews from the land of Babylon, where they were in exile, kind of held captive in Babylon, their return back to the land of their ancestors, um, the land of Judah, and in particularly the city of Jerusalem. And that city, Jerusalem, had been destroyed by Babylon, uh, by the king Nebuchadnezzar, and the majority of the Jews who were living in Jerusalem at that time had been taken captive, taken away from their homes to live in Babylon. Eighty years later, Babylon had been the, the empire of Babylon had been conquered by the empire of Media Persia, and King Cyrus of Persia 
issued a decree in the beginning of Ezra that allowed the Jews living in Babylon to return to their homeland. And I say return, you know, other than some of the older folks, there were some people old enough uh, that they remembered, uh, you know, the, their home in Jerusalem, but most of them had grown up in Babylon. So it was really a return home to a place they had never even been to, never actually called home in their lives before that. And it was a large, there was a, uh, about 50,000 people that went back in that first big um, migration. And during that first return in Ezra 1 through 6, we were introduced to a few key characters, uh, if you recall, none of whom were actually Ezra. <laughs> so we, the main two leaders that we looked at were Zerubbabel, uh, who is a descendant of King David, kind of makes his ancestry important, and then Yeshua, who's a descendant of Aaron, the uh, first high priest of Israel. But Ezra hadn't even, we haven't seen Ezra on the scene yet in the first half of the book. And their mission, though, with this first return, first and foremost, was to, to build, to rebuild the temple that had been destroyed so that they could reestablish their worship of Yahweh and to renew their covenant vows with Yahweh there uh, at the temple in Jerusalem. But they had to rebuild the temple, so they set out to do that and ran into some road roadblocks. We re read about some of the opposition they faced from their neighbors, and the building of the temple got delayed. It didn't happen right away, but ultimately they did finish it. And by the time you get to chapter 6 in Ezra, that's where they're dedicating the new temple and it kind of ushers in this new era for the Jews. I talked about how we even still today refer to that whole period of time marked by the completion of that second temple as the second temple period for the Jews. And then there's almost a 60-year gap. There's like 20 years from the beginning of Ezra to Ezra 6, and then 60 years from Ezra 6 to Ezra 7. So there's a pretty big gap there. So almost an 80-year gap. Not quite, almost. An 80-year gap from the beginning of Ezra to Ezra 7. And that's where we're going to pick up today, is, is Ezra chapter 7. But in the meantime, somewhere in the middle, you know, between in that 80-year gap, is where the story of Esther fits in, which is why we kind of inserted that book of Esther and went through the whole book of Esther between Ezra 6 and Ezra 7, so that it fits in chronologically. And I do have a timeline here that I know most of the text is like ridiculously small and you can't read any of it. So I added some larger text here. And just to kind of give you a visual of the overall timeline, the green little blob at the, the beginning on the left side is 440 BC. And then on the right side, it's 500 BC. Uh, sorry, 550 to 400. 550 on the left, 400 on the right. So it's about 150 year time span there. And that, towards the beginning, uh, that first little line, the first dot, is the beginning of the book of Ezra. And then a little bit further down, you can see where the second temple was completed. And right in the middle of that timeline is the beginning and end of Esther. And then just after that, you have the events of Ezra chapter 7. And then a little bit further is the beginning of Nehemiah. Uh, so we will be you know, eventually picking up and continuing in Nehemiah because the story really flows from Ezra right into Nehemiah. So that just kind of gives you a visual of that 150-year period and why we put Esther in right in the middle, because that's right where it falls. So now we're, we're back to Ezra, though, and we're here at chapter 7, and realize that with that, there's an 80-year gap, right? So Ezra probably wasn't even born 
during that first return. If he was, he would have been very, very little, which explains why he wasn't really mentioned at all um, in that first part of the story. So he would have been born and raised, grew up in Babylon at some point in that period between chapter 6 and chapter 7. So we haven't seen that Ezra, the person of Ezra, in the book of Ezra. But here in chapter 7, he's finally going to be introduced, and it's kind of a long introduction. Uh, He's given a lot of attention at the beginning of this chapter because he's going to play a pretty major part in the rest of the story. So let's read uh, beginning in Ezra chapter 7. After these events, during the reign of King Artaxerxes of Persia, Ezra, Sariah's son, Azariah's son, Hilkiah's son, Shalom's son, Zadok's son, Ahitub's son, Amariah's son, Azariah's son, Mariah's son, Zariah's son, Uzai's son, Bukai's son, Abishua's son, Phineas' son, Eleazar's son, the chief priest, Aaron's son. You're welcome for reading all those names. <laughs> Came up from Babylon. It's a very long sentence. <laughs> he was a scribe, skilled in the law of Moses, which the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. The king had granted him everything he requested because the hand of the Lord, his God, was on him. Some of the Israelites, priests, Levites, singers, gatekeepers, and temple servants accompanied him to Jerusalem in the seventh year of King Artaxerxes. Ezra came to Jerusalem in the fifth month during the seventh year of the king. He began the journey from Babylon on the first day of the first month and arrived in Jerusalem on the first day of the fifth month since the gracious hand of his God was on him. Now Ezra had determined in his heart to study the law of the Lord, obey it, and teach its statutes and ordinances in Israel. So first of all, the way this chapter begins, by just saying, you know, after these events, it can really throw you off if you're not paying attention to the, to the timeline of events. Because you can kind of go right from chapter 6 into chapter 7 and not realize there's that whole 80-year gap there, which is why I really wanted to emphasize that point at the beginning. And, you know, most translations use a pretty literal translation after these events, or after these things, or even just after this. Um, The NLT, if you have the New Living Translation, you might notice it makes kind of an interpretive leap, and instead it says many years later, uh, which that's not a literal translation of the words that were used, but it does help you accurately understand the story and realize that there was a, a time gap there. So that's just a quick little example. Comparing translations can sometimes be very helpful in, in studying Scripture. So it's many years later, Ezra has been in, introduced, and I just want to point out a couple things about how Ezra is introduced here. And the first is just kind of a fun piece of trivia because I like trivia. Uh, the name Ezra in Hebrew means Yahweh has helped. It's a nice name, isn't it? Yahweh has helped. And it's kind of fitting because he comes on the scene at a time in which Yahweh has helped Israel by you know, allowing them to return from exile. So it's just a fitting name for this, um, this story. And the second, he's introduced kind of with this mini genealogy. Um, why is that? Why all those names? Why bother with tracing his, his lineage like this? Well, it's interesting, and it might have seemed long as I was struggling through the list of names, but it's really not as long as it should be if it were going to be a complete list, a complete genealogy. If you count the names and the generations there, you'll notice it's not really long enough to be a complete genealogy that traces all the way back to Aaron. 
but it makes enough important connections along the way to make the point that his lineage does trace back to Aaron, the high priest, the first high priest, the time of Moses. So that lineage, tracing him to Aaron, gives him some importance in the Jewish community. And this is similar to what we saw earlier. Remember, with Zerubbabel being traced back to King David and with Yeshua's ties, his ties to Aaron. Um, and now we're introduced to a different descendant of Aaron, Ezra. And you'll see that throughout the book, that the ties back to their ancestry is very important. Now, he's also introduced as a scribe. Now, this means a couple of things. First, in the Persian context, um, and it is also made evident by the, you know, the, context, the context of the rest of the narrative, Ezra holds a pretty official position of a pretty significant rank in the, the Persian administration here. It's kind of a secretary type of position where he's, it's very detail-oriented and it requires a significant amount of education and skill, and he's probably you know, writes important documents down, things like that, keeps records maybe. But then more importantly, verse 6 points out that he's not only you know, a secretary for, for the Persian administration, he's also skilled specifically in the law of Moses, referring to the Torah. He's a Torah expert. And, you know, in today's terms, if I were going to refer to him, I'd say he's, he's like a super Bible nerd, you know? He, and I think that's just a really cool fact about Ezra, and we'll kind of come back to that later on. Just remember that about Ezra. He's a, he's a Bible nerd. And right on the heels of this introduction to the person of Ezra, we kind of, we're told a little bit about who he is. Uh, and then verses 7 through 9 just give this quick little summary of his whole story, saying basically, you know, he led a group of people on a journey to Jerusalem, and he was successful by the grace of God. They arrived there safely. And that just kind of summarizes the whole rest of chapter 7 and 8 right there. It's a whole little summary statement. But then before going into the rest of the details about the process of that journey, the introduction to Ezra is concluded by just this incredible statement in verse 10. It says, Now Ezra had determined in his heart to study the law of the Lord, obey it, and teach its statutes and ordinances in Israel. I think this one verse really captures the most crucial essence of Ezra's character and the most relevant to the story, for sure. And it becomes an undercurrent, kind of moving through the rest of his story and throughout the rest of, of the book. Ezra was committed to do three things, and I want you to, to keep these in mind as we move through the rest of the story this morning. He was committed to study Scripture, to know God's Word. He was committed to obey Scripture, obey God's Word. And he was committed to teach, share what he knew. He allowed God's word to transform his character and his behavior, ultimately to the benefit of others, the benefit of those around him. So I'm going to kind of just leave that slide up for a little while so you can keep those things in mind and ponder how they impact his decisions and the story as, as we go through the rest of the story. So we're going to keep reading, uh, picking up in verse 11. We're still in chapter 7. 
This is the text of the letter King Artaxerxes gave to Ezra the priest and scribe, an expert in matters of the Lord's commands and statutes for Israel. And the next, this whole next section is like a letter that's inserted, and it's actually written in Aramaic, which was pretty standard for diplomatic communication in the Persian Empire. So the rest of it is written in Hebrew, like the rest of most of the Old Testament you know, scripture is written in Hebrew. And then this is like a little insert of the king's letter in the original language that it was written. Greetings. All right, I think I skipped a verse. Artaxerxes, king of kings, to the Ezra, the priest, an expert in the law of God, of the God of the heavens. Greetings. I issued a decree that any of the Israelites in my kingdom, including their priests and Levites, who want to go to Jerusalem, may go with you. You are sent by the king and his seven counselors to evaluate Judah and Jerusalem according to the law of your God, which is in your possession. You are also to bring the silver and gold the king and his counselors have willingly given to the God of Israel, whose dwelling is in Jerusalem. And all the silver and gold you receive throughout the province of Babylon, together with the free will offerings given by the people and the priests to the house of their God in Jerusalem. Then you are to be diligent to buy with this money bulls, rams, and lambs, along with their grain and drink offerings, and offer them on the altar at the house of your God in Jerusalem. You may do whatever seems best to you and your brothers with the rest of the silver and gold according to the will of your God. Deliver to the God of Jerusalem all the articles given to you for the service of the house of your God. You may use the royal treasury to pay for anything else needed for the house of your God. I, King Artaxerxes, issue a decree to all the treasurers in the region west of the Euphrates. Whatever Ezra the priest, an expert in the law of the God of the heavens, Asks, you, asks of you must be provided in full, up to 7,500 pounds of silver, 500 bushels of wheat, 550 gallons of wine, 550 gallons of oil, and salt without limit. Whatever is commanded by the God of the heavens must be done diligently for the house of the God of the heavens, so that wrath will not fall on the realm of the king and his sons. Be advised that you do not have authority to impose tribute, duty, and land tax on any priests, Levites, singers, doorkeepers, temple servants, or other servants of this house of God. And you, Ezra, according to God's wisdom that you possess, appoint magistrates and judges to judge all the people in the region west of the Euphrates who know the laws of your God and to teach anyone who does not know them. Anyone who does not keep the law of your God and the law of the king let the appropriate judgment be executed against him, whether death, banishment, confiscation of property, or imprisonment. All right, so this is a letter issued by Artaxerxes, the son of Xerxes, the king of the Persian Empire. And do you, anyone notice the title that he goes by in verse 12? King of Kings. King of Kings. That's a pretty epic title, right? Does it sound kind of familiar to anyone? It was a pretty common title for Persian kings to use at the time, but most of us are probably more familiar with uh, the title being used in the New Testament to refer to God and or Christ as the King of kings and Lord of lords, right? And when the New Testament writers ascribe that title to God, they're not just making that up as a new title. They're intentionally using that to assert his authority over even the greatest of human kings of history, including any Persian king who ever lived. 
And then notice that even within the book of Ezra, even though Xerxes or Artaxerxes gets to use that title, King of Kings, God's authority is still ultimately given credit for all of the actions that the, the earthly kings take, whether it's Artaxerxes or Cyrus or Darius throughout these stories. All right, now to summarize some of the main points of this letter, the letter granted Ezra the power and the authority to do um, basically four things. First was to evaluate the situation in Jerusalem. Second was to present free will offerings to God. The third was to obtain supplies and finances in huge amounts from their local authorities. And then finally, to institute judicial reforms and laws. And according to some of the commentaries that I was reading, the quantities of the supplies that were listed was so vast, it would have been more than sufficient for at least two whole years of daily sacrifices in the temple. A lot of supplies. And also notice that anyone who wants to return can return. This invitation extends to all who are willing, which also means that for those who, do, who remained in exile, they were doing so willingly. They chose to do so, um, whether for good reasons or bad. I'm sure there were some of both. But they were no longer being held captive. Anyone who remained in Babylon did so of their own free will. It is also interesting to me to notice that at the beginning of the book, when Cyrus initially issued his decree, sent that first big group with the primary mission, of, for their primary mission was to build the temple, rebuild the temple. The, the building was their main focus. But the temple's built now, and Artaxerxes, his concern is more that the temple is, doesn't just sit there, that it actually functions the way that it was designed to function uh, as to, to facilitate the sacrifices and to then with the ultimate uh, intention of bringing spiritual health and revival to the Jewish community in Jerusalem. Which brings me to a question. If that was his focus, was to send these people to, to bring spiritual revival to the Jews in Jerusalem, why? on earth would this Persian king decide to do that? What's in it for him? Why would a Persian king go to such great length to restore sacrificial worship of Yahweh in the Jewish temple in Jerusalem? If you look closely, he actually makes his own motives pretty transparent. It's cool that he's he's doing this, but he does. there is kind of an ulterior, ulterior motive. There is something in it for him. First, it shows up in verse 23. He says, you know, whatever is commanded by the God of the heavens must be done diligently for the house of the God of the heavens, so that, (laughs) this is his real purpose, wrath will not fall on the realm of the king and his sons, referring to himself and his family. And then again, in verse 26, you kind of get another glimpse at his motives. Anyone who does not keep the law of your God and the law of the king, again referring to himself, it's not just, not just the law of Yahweh that he wants Ezra to enforce, it's the law of the king, the law of the land. Let appropriate judgment be executed against him. So Artaxerxes is looking for two things. The first is spiritual protection. In his mind, he's appeasing the local gods of the peoples whom he rules over. You know, and he... 
did clearly believe that Yahweh existed. He probably also believed that he was one of many other local gods. And by allowing the Jews to return to the temple, restore their sacrificial worship, he would be appeasing the God of the Jews and therefore bring favor to his own, you know, his, his self and his family and his kingdom. And historical records actually corroborate this um, practice of Persian kings to, to do this in, in order to kind of protect themselves from the, their surrounding local deities. Very interesting. But then he's also expecting his own law to be enforced within these political territories as a result of this agreement. So he's giving them kind of religious autonomy. He's giving them the freedom to worship their way under their terms and to follow their laws, but within the, the parameters of his political control. So there's still going to be some Persian control over, over these territories. And the agent that he's choosing to accomplish this mission of establishing the religious autonomy and maintaining his political authority is Ezra. So Ezra, through this letter, is commissioned as both a civil and spiritual leader for the newly returning Jews that he'll bring back with him, as well as the Jews that had already been living there. And then after the conclusion of the letter, you know, the writing switches back into Hebrew, and it switches into first-person narrative, which is highly unusual for Old Testament narrative. It switches into first person with Ezra as the speaker. And we get to the chapter, uh, the end of chapter 7, with Ezra praising God for this turn of events. Pretty cool. So starting in verse 27, Ezra says, Blessed be the Lord, the God of our ancestors, who has put it in the king's mind to glorify the house of the Lord in Jerusalem, and who has shown favor to me before the king, his counselors, and all his powerful officers. So I took courage, because I was strengthened by the hand of the Lord my God, and I gathered Israelite leaders to return with me. So after he presents the contents of this royal letter, says, this is what the king said, then he immediately presents his own personal response, which rather than glorifies or boasts in himself, uh, for achieving this great honor or this, this great responsibility that he now has. He glorifies and praises Yahweh, the God of his ancestors, and he gives God the full credit for the decision the king made. You notice that. And then there's one word I'd like to point out in verse 8. I think this is the, I mentioned Ezra's Hebrew name. Um, this is the last little bit of Hebrew nerddom for this morning. Uh, in verse 8, and depending on your translation, it might, you might have um, one word or it could be two words. Ezra says that Yahweh has shown him favor. In the CSB, it's favor. You might see steadfast love. He's shown favor to me before the king, or he has shown his steadfast love or his steadfast kindness or unfailing love or loyal love. You'll find a wide variety of different ways this word is translated. It's one Hebrew word, but it's really difficult to translate into one or even two or three English words. The Hebrew word is, is kesed, <laughs> uh, and it's, the meaning is just a beautiful, it's a beautiful word. It has a depth that can really submerse you for hours if you ever want to go on a, uh, a word study. We're not going to do that this morning, but if you look at all the ways it's used, it means favor, it means grace, 
it means love and loyalty and kindness and mercy, and they're all kind of interlocking in a way that really only God can demonstrate. And in general, it's used uh, in reference to God um, showing hesed to people. You find this word a lot in Psalms. Um, ultimately, it's referring specifically to God's covenant love for Israel the loyalty that comes from the covenant that he made with Israel and the love that motivates that loyalty. And Ezra is praising God for extending that hesed to him and subsequently then to Israel. So that's how chapter 7 ends. I'll leave it at that. If you, if you find that stuff interesting, you can look, at, look up the word on your own and, and do your own search. Verse 28. Yeah, did I say 8? Sorry, verse 28, yes, which is right after the letter, verse 28, where, where Ezra is blessing uh, God, praising God. Thank you. Missed a two in there. All right, so that's, that's the end of chapter 7. And then with chapter 8, we're hit with another genealogy. And this is a, a longer one than, than the first one. I'm not going to read through all of these names. Um, the long list of names. There are 15 different families represented in this list. Um, and there's a couple things I want to point out. We're not going to read through it, but there's a couple things that are interesting. And the list is here for a reason. Um, why, why is this list of names here? Why is it important? Well, besides, you know, we know it was, it's just practical to keep records, and we know that's one of Ezra's strengths anyway, so it makes sense that he would, he would keep these types of records. But this list, again, shows direct links to Aaron and to David and to the various branches of their, their lineage, which was obviously very important to the Jewish community at that time. Also, it's interesting because if you compare the numbers in this list, of the, the numbers of people who, who went back, you'll notice it's a, actually a much smaller group than the first group that we saw in Ezra. Still a lot, a lot of people. It's roughly four or five thousand people. Still a lot of people to organize for a journey, but compared to forty or fifty thousand, that's like ten times less, uh, ten times smaller group uh, of people on this journey. And then after that, we read how this journey did hit a snag, even really before they began. So we're going to pick up in verse fifteen and and read through this, and in chapter eight now. Chapter 8, verse 15. I gathered them, says Ezra still speaking, first person. I gathered them at the river that flows to Ahava, and we camped there for three days. I searched among the people and priests, but found no Levites there. Then I summoned the leaders, Eliezer, Ariel, Shemaiah, Elnathan, Jerib, Elnathan, another one, Nathan, Zechariah, and Meshulam, as well as the teachers, Jawirib and Elnathan. A lot of Elnathans. I mean, by the way, Nathan or Nathan uh, means uh, is the verb to give, and El Nathan means God gives or God has given. So that is kind of a cool name. I sent them to Edo, the leader at Casaphia, with a message for him and his brothers, the temple servants at Casaphia, that they should bring us ministers to the house of our God. Since the gracious hand of our God was on us, they brought us Sheribi. Sherebiah, a man of insight from the descendants of Mali, a descendant of Levi, son of Israel, along with his sons and brothers. Eighteen men, 
plus Hashabiah, along with Jeshiah from the descendants of Marari and his brothers and their sons, 20 men. There were also 220 of the temple servants who had been appointed by David and the leaders for the and the leaders for the work of the Levites. All were identified by name. So still, still get a lot of names in this, even though we skipped the genealogy. But verse 15 says, this is the main conflict that it's introducing here, that there wasn't a single Levite. He couldn't find any Levites in this group of people. Even back, if you look, look at Ezra 2.40, I believe Mike brought this out, there weren't very many Levites who went back even in the first, uh, with Sheshbazar, uh, that first uh, return. And it's unclear, really. We don't know why there seemed to be such a shortage of Levites, why no one wanted to go back to Jerusalem out of the Levites. No one's volunteering to go back. So Ezra sent some guys who had some authority or some pull, some influence, to try to recruit some Levites to go with them. And in the end, this recruitment drive was a success. But notice how, even though Ezra organized this recruitment, he sent out some capable men. He doesn't give them credit. He doesn't give himself credit. He gives God the credit in verse 18. The gracious hand of our God was on us. Because of that, they brought back some Levites. They needed some extra hands for the journey. Literally, they needed extra hands. And those hands were provided by God's gracious hand. Pretty cool. So that was kind of the first little conflict that they had to take care of. Having enough priests and Levites uh, specifically was the first matter of preparation that Ezra had to take care of before they really were able to begin their journey. And the other was to ask God for protection on their journey. As we keep reading in verse 21, this is how they did that. I proclaimed a fast by the Ahava River so that we might humble ourselves before our God and ask him for a safe journey for us, our dependents, and all our possessions. I did this because I was ashamed to ask the king for infantry and cavalry to protect us from enemies during the journey. Since we had told him, the hand of our God is gracious to all who seek him, but his fierce anger is against all who abandon him. So we fasted and pleaded with our God about this, and he was receptive to our prayer. Why would they need to pray for protection? For one thing, they were traveling with a huge amount of wealth. All of those supplies that the king was giving them for the temple and the sacrifices, it was worth a lot. And, you know, some of the exact numbers I was reading of some of the items, some of the exact numbers for certain things are, are a little bit debated. But even if you, no matter what number you land on, even the smaller possibilities of the numbers are still huge numbers. It's still a ton of money in just the silver and gold and then other valuable goods that they were traveling with. So traveling with that much wealth on you it was a huge risk, and you know, I probably would have been nervous traveling with all that, even with an escort, a royal escort from the king uh, to keep us safe, you know, the soldiers and everything, let alone without any military protection at all. And yet, Ezra is committed to fully relying on God to protect them because he's also committed to upholding Yahweh's reputation, which he has himself publicly and boldly proclaimed before the king and his fellow Jews. God will protect us. That's the reputation that I know. 
from the scriptures, and that's the reputation I'm going to rely on for this journey. So they humbled themselves, they fasted, and they prayed and asked God for a safe journey. And it goes ahead and just tells you he granted it to them. And it tells you ahead of time that they were able to, to make the journey. It does not matter how much you study and obey and teach the word of God, as Ezra did. There will still be times of uncertainty in your life where it will require faith if you're going to follow God. God wants us to trust in him, and that's one of the main lessons of the greater narrative, as well as this small little subplot of Ezra. So then in verse 31, they finally are able to set out from the Ahava River on the 12th day of the first month, which is what we would call April 19th, which is actually coming up pretty soon. It's right around the same time. And if you compare that with the original plan, which was to leave on the first day of the month, which would be April 8th, um, there was a 12-day kind of delay. All of this preparation that they had to go through meant this 12-day delay. And Today is April 11th, so that's like right in the middle of that delay period that they had. It's kind of cool. But in this case, you know, they he originally wanted to set out on the first day of the month, but doing things the right way, getting the priests and the Levites that he needed, and then seeking God's favor, he knew was way more important than sticking to the plan and meeting deadlines that he set for himself. It shows Ezra's uh, faith and his, where his priorities were. Now, about this journey, I just wanted to talk about the logistics of this journey a little bit. It's a pretty massive trip. It was roughly 900 miles, and it took them a total of about 14 weeks to, from start to finish. And I know you can't really, again, there's a lot of really tiny text on this slide, but if you see that main red line, uh, sorry, the, the red line is actually the, the trip that Nehemiah took. Right above that red line is a purple line that starts a little bit further to the east. And you can see where he kind of follows the, the path of the river up a little bit to Aleppo and then down. It's, it's a pretty massive journey. Um, see, there's something else I want to point out here. It, oh, it, it does kind of show the expanse of the Persian kingdom because everything in green there is what's under control of the Persian kingdom. If you notice off to the lower left corner, to the southeast a little bit, or southwest, um, is Egypt. And Egypt is kind of getting towards the edge of Persian control. They're starting to, and the Greeks are starting to, if you know history at all, you know the Greeks are kind of what stopped the Persian advancement into Europe and further west. Uh, so that's kind of where the Persian Empire is at this point in history. They're kind of reaching this edge, and Israel is where that the end of that red line is, is Jerusalem. That's kind of that a, a buffer to the, the outer edges of the Persian Empire. So you can see how this would be a politically and um, military strategic move to try to secure that border and secure that buffer between um, the edges of the Persian Empire and, and the rest of the Persian Empire. I, I like maps. I think they're, they're fun. So they, they arrived, you know, 14 weeks. It's nearly four months journey. And so they would have arrived early in the month of August. And it's, 
again, just kind of fun how that timeline lines up with where we are at in our year right now. So imagine we'd be getting ready for this trip right now. We'd be all gathered in this big group of people uh, during that initial prep preparation period, and then the the departure date would be next week. Early next week, we'd be hitting the road, walking, <laughs> riding camels, donkeys, and we'd be doing that for 14 weeks until the first week of August. That's that's a long journey, especially, you know, not in air-conditioned cars and, and buses and vans, you know. It's, but it's pretty much the whole summer, especially up here. You know, the first week of August, you, you don't have much summer left after that. So you'd be leaving the beginning of uh, spring when, when weather is good and, and there's water available along the way. So that is why they would have left at this time, too, was to work with the weather and with what the river would have had plenty of water. That's why they travel along the river. But between, you know, the length of this journey and the risks involved of traveling with all that money, I guess when you consider not everyone signed up for this journey, it kind of isn't all that shocking. It would have been a pretty daunting endeavor. Not everyone signed up at once to make the trip. So chapter 8 ends with the Jews who returned from the exile, uh, finally arriving in Jerusalem uh, and offering burnt offerings to the God of Israel. I won't read through all, all the details of that, but for just something to think about is for many of these Jews who came back during this second wave, uh, the second uh, return with Ezra to Jerusalem, this was probably the first sacrifice that they had ever offered at least to Yahweh, and certainly in the temple in Jerusalem. So this really would have been a very moving spiritual experience for them. And it was obviously important to them, if they signed up for this journey, it was important for them to be able to do that. So this was not just something they did for fun or because Jerusalem sounded like a fun place to live. They were still rebuilding in the ruins of, of the city, and it was not, yeah, just not something they do for fun. So this was something of spiritual uh, significance to them. It would have been very moving for them to be able to confess their sins and to dedicate their lives to God in, in a new way in, in the temple. And next week, we're going to talk a little bit more about the power of confession and repentance as we wrap up the book of Ezra. But for today, I want to kind of circle back to the description of Ezra that we read uh, back in chapter 7 and verse 10. I'm just going to read that verse again. Now, Ezra had determined in his heart to study the law of the Lord, obey it, and teach its statutes and ordinances in Israel. If you view the narrative of these two chapters through the lens of this statement, it really makes a lot of sense, the way things turned out, and it becomes very applicable. You know, again, so by committing to, to these three things, to knowing God's Word, to obeying God's Word, and to sharing God's Word. Ezra allowed God's Word to transform his character and his behavior to the ultimate benefit of others. That's really the most applicable point, the most applicable PowerPoint slide that you could find in any narrative, I think. You know, we talked about how narratives and, and characters don't always present models of, of character or 
or applicable points in narratives, but this one just jumps right off the page. It's so practical. So I just want to quickly break down each of these things. Uh, it's, it's a motivating priority that's just fundamental in Ezra's life, and it just impacts and overflows into every other aspect of life, and it just scales to us so easily. All right, so first, Ezra was determined to study God's Word. He wanted to know God's Word. As I put it earlier, he was a Bible nerd. His knowledge of God and the decisions that he made ultimately came from his commitment to spending time in Scripture. And that's exactly what Scripture was given for, to study and to meditate on it. You see that in Joshua 1.8 in this This book of instruction must not depart from your mouth. You are to meditate on it day and night so that you may carefully observe everything written in it. For then you will prosper and succeed in whatever you do. And you find this concept um, in Psalms quite a bit. You have verses like Psalm 119.11, I have treasured your word in my heart so that I may not sin against you. And Psalm 119, 105, your word is a lamp for my feet and a light on my path. Scripture is a treasure. We should not take that for granted. And we live in unprecedented times, uh, very different from Ezra. We have unprecedented access to Scripture through all different translations and whatever our first language is and in hundreds of study tools, and in every medium of consumption, whether you want to read it or listen to it or watch it. Now, the one caveat I want to want to give is, I mentioned, you know, Ezra is a Bible nerd. That's great. We should follow that model. Does that mean I'm saying that everyone should be the ultimate Bible nerd? Yes, you should, but, but also no. I, there's definitely a scale of nerdiness when it comes to the Bible. You know, very few people ever come close to maxing out that scale, and I'm sure I never will, and that's okay. And one, one of the cool things about how God designed the church is that it works as a body and uses all kinds of different parts. So when I say everyone should be a Bible nerd, it's only in the sense that you know, I don't mean that everyone needs to devote years of their lives to studying biblical languages and doing research and getting doctorate degrees because a very small percentage of the, the church's population can realistically do that. And I'm thankful for those people who can and do, but they're not most people. And again, that's okay. But everyone should be a Bible nerd only in the sense that everyone should take personal responsibility for their relationship with God. And that starts by spending time in the Word and, and making that a priority in your life and in the lives of your families. So then the next step, it's one thing to prioritize spending time in the Bible, reading it, listening to it. The next step is to actually put it into practice, right? And that gets tangibly more challenging. Making time for, for God's Word and, and for spending time with him is already a challenge for, for many of us, and I get that. But it's one thing to know the truth, and it's another to act on it. And James talks about this uh, in James 1.22, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. 
Ezra was committed to not only study God's word, but to obey it. What does that mean? What does it mean to obey God's word? Well, that's a pretty broad question, right? That encompasses, uh, there's 66 books in, in the Bible that we have today and thousands and thousands of pages. Well, it's a, it's a broad question, but it's a very good question. And it's one that a very clever Bible nerd asked Jesus um, in Matthew 22, kind of trying to stump him, because Jesus came on the scene as kind of a, a different type of Bible nerd, and other Bible nerds like to come and challenge his, his knowledge of the Bible. So there's this, this one guy comes up to, to Jesus and says, in Matthew 22, this is um, starting in verse 36. I think I have 37 here on the screen. In 36, he, this guy asks, Teacher, which command is in the law is the greatest? How do you obey the Bible? It's basically not exactly the same question, but very similar question. And Jesus, he said to him, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and most important man. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets for him, he was saying, the whole Bible depend on these two commandments. So that's it. That's the most basic fundamental application for the whole Bible to any human at any point in history is to love God and to love your neighbor, love others. The neighbor, as Jesus defined, being anyone, including your enemies. Love God and love others. If you've committed your life to Jesus, you've committed to this creed, his creed, to love God and love your neighbor. Now, obviously, the exact details of what that looks like for each of us in any given moment, in any given day, is going to look different. But every action and every thought in our lives, that is, if it's obedient to God and obedient to Scripture, it's also obedient to that imperative to love God and love others. And finally, Ezra was committed to teaching others. He was committed to sharing God's word. So it wasn't just enough to be dedicated to, to knowing and obeying Scripture for himself. He was determined to, to spread that resolve. And of course, you know, this, third, this third aspect or this third commitment that Ezra made really springs out of those first two naturally. If you love God and love others, then naturally a part of that will be to share Jesus with others. Now, I want to offer, you know, a caveat with this point in the same way that I kind of did with the first, because just like not everyone needs to have a doctorate uh, to, in theology to be a good Christian, uh, to, to say I'm studying, you know, the Word, not everyone needs to be a professor of theology or to be even, you know, a teaching pastor or a, teach, a teacher in an official capacity of any kind. When I say you should be sharing God's word, um, that doesn't mean you need to be a teacher to be a faithful Christian. However, you know, it's like with anything that we love in life or that we're passionate about, we naturally become accustomed to talking about that thing or that person with other people. And we teach by simply telling people about our story. And, you know, we do this with Think about the relationships that we have. 
Uh, so whether it's something that I, I did with a friend or some, you know, how I met my wife or something to do with parenthood, something funny or exciting or, or crazy that happened um, with a new baby. You know, we do it with, with our relationships. We talk about it and thereby teach people um, about our lives and about other people in our lives just by telling people about it. We do it with possessions, you know, whether it's, you know, projects we're working on in a house or cars or clothes or technology. We do it with entertainment, with books and movies and video games. We do it with sports. We do it with food. You know, if you have even just a little bit of passion for something in your life, the natural desire is to share that passion with others. It's a good, it's a healthy desire and a healthy uh, thing to do that, to share your passion. But our, our number one and foremost passion should be to love God and to love others. If we're not passionate about God, or if we're not passionate about our neighbors, and we're not loving God, and we're not loving our neighbors. Do I have this? I think I do. Psalm 96 3 says, Declare his glory among the nations, his wondrous works among all peoples. This is a, a fundamental aspect of knowing God, loving God, is declaring his glory. And then, of course, Jesus himself gave the Great Commission. Uh, one of the places you can read it is Mark 16, 15. Then he said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel or proclaim the gospel to all creation. Preach, you know, preach. So it doesn't mean you have to be a preacher. This is just declaring uh, the glory of God to others. You know, in, in the narrative, in Ezra's story, Ezra was determined to study and obey and teach the Torah. And the fact that he studied it is very evident by his knowledge of it and by the fact that he was committed to upholding Yahweh's reputation, the reputation he read about in the Torah. He knew that belonged to Yahweh, that reputation, and he was committed to, to believing in it and to upholding that reputation. And then he put that faith into action when he fully leaned on that reputation, using his own life as an example to the king and to his fellow Jews. Now, obviously, our stories are all vastly different from Ezra's. Even though we, we have a little bit more in common with each other in this room, or anyone even online, anyone living in this decade uh, or century or millennia, um, we have a little bit more in common with each other than we do with Ezra. But even still, everyone in this room and everyone listening online and everyone who's living now has vastly different stories, each from each other. But the underlying principles that governed Ezra's story are just as applicable to every one of us as they were to him. I think that's just so cool as we you know, read about his story that we can take those principles that he lived by thousands of years ago and apply them to our lives is such a gift. Know God's word, obey God's word, and share God's word. Father, I, I thank you for who you are and for your willingness to reveal yourself to us through your word. Lord, I pray that we would not fall into the trap of taking you for granted, taking scripture for granted, that we would treasure it in our hearts, that we would meditate on it day and night. 
that we would make it a priority in our lives, make room in our hearts and our minds for your word, because that's how you've revealed yourself to us. And Lord, let us, upon hearing the word, also be doers of the word, that we would act in faith, that we would live in faith and not just in our heads and in our knowledge of you, but truly act upon who we know you are. And that in doing those first two things, that it would just naturally be an outpouring of our hearts and and our souls, that uh, those around us in our families and in our workplaces and in our communities and our neighborhoods uh, would then be impacted by the overflow of love and joy and peace that comes from your spirit and your word transforming lives and hearts, our own lives, uh, that your spirit would, would transform our families and our communities and our neighborhoods. Let us learn from uh, the good choices, the good motives that Ezra had uh, in, in this story so many years ago. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, now, I got a request. You can go ahead and end the live stream.